Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And tonight we're going to do something different. Um, I have a large archive of interviews I've done in the past. And one of the interviews I did back in 1976 was with Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, a friend of mine, Kyle Counts, a journalist with Cinefantastique magazine, which I was also writing for, was working on a retrospect of the great Hitchcock film, The Birds. And he called me one day and said that circumstances prevented him from coming down to Los Angeles to interview Hitch. And would I be interested in doing the interview? Well, it was probably one of the most no-brainer questions I've been asked in my entire life. So tonight, I'm going to feature my interview with Alfred Hitchcock. Now, bear in mind that this was recorded on a tiny little cassette player, and the sound in the first uh, minute and a half is going to be a little dicey, but you're going to hear the master. Now, he's not a fast-talking man. This was late in his career, uh, late in his life, actually. He would pass four years later. Uh, so he's slow, but he's Alfred Hitchcock. If there's ever an iconic director in the history of Hollywood, it was Alfred Hitchcock. So uh, I'm going to let you uh, listen to my interview from 1976. Here's Alfred Hitchcock talking about the birds. Okay. Now, my stomach's prepared to listen to questions. I'll take it out to ask you as well. Um, which I know is a project very dear to you. Um, personally, it's one of my all-time favorite things, so I'm doing this in the We've talked about it so many times. Um, each, in interviewing all these different people, we can see particularly the story of it, from the beginning to the end, covering all aspects of the film, how it was produced, the mm-hmm. effects, the storyline. I have you dealt with the original Japanese in my years. We haven't been able to find her. We haven't really done an in-depth analysis. My son has. Now that would be the property is based on the original story. Based on the original short story by her. Have you known her uh, when you found her? I've made a film with that And um, uh, and you, you found the story interesting right away. Well, the idea. I didn't follow her story because <coughs> I'd always noticed all she had was a person and his wife and child and sort of central figures in the victims of this, shall we say, extracurricular activity. And uh, it needed and needed another sort of uh, present-day atmosphere rather than a village in Cornwall. Almost the same thing that happened with H.P. Who Are the World. Well, I examined all those. I knew those. I knew H.P. well. It was fairly well. And um, if you notice War of the World, or Time Machine, 
sleeper awake, all the well souls. And it seems to be indigenous to all stories that are what you would call science fiction. Seem to put the personal story in second place. Uh-huh. It's the event that takes over. If you examine Daphne du Maurier's first, you'll find that the individual concern, sincerely a story or person thing to do, are very inconsequential. They, 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 they don't matter. It's almost like in spy stories. Everybody really worries about what the spies are after, which are called the the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin were the papers. Spies are after the papers. I suppose the earliest example is um, in um, Rudyard Kipling. And what were they after in his adventure stories? The plans of the fort. You see? So, <coughs> In the, what I call, event stories, if you've seen the way they make them up today, they fill them full of cameos, which you don't really get a full-fledged storyline, unless, unless you were to say, well, if we make a story about the Titanic, we ought to do it from the point of view of a riveter who puts in the rivet. I agree, I agree. Wrongly. And his error caused the side of the to be torn open by the iceberg. I mean, this isn't actually true, because the iceberg was much stronger than the ship. But <coughs> that is the only way that you can ever approach a disaster story, if you're using any imagination at all. The disaster story would definitely spring from a... Uh, 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 an error, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the door on the plane that crashed outside Paris, you know. Mm-hmm. Or in like the towering inferno, the use of the circuitry is being hot-wired, so... Somebody um, made a mistake. Mm-hmm. <coughs> now, that's the only idea I can bring forward uh, in an impromptu way. At the moment, so therefore, coming back to the birds, you see, uh, we had this peasant couple, and uh, they were the central figures that really 
it boiled down to a more, shall we say, um, concrete reason, more solid reason, why these birds attacked in the first place. This wasn't explaining the Maurier story? I can't remember. Uh -huh. Just a little, I can't remember. You'd have to read it. Check that out. I put in <clears throat> frivolity, cocktail party girl, and so on and so forth. Thought that life was easy and everything was hunky dory, and no problems, nothing. And she was the major victim of the birds. That was the shape mm -hmm. that whether it was appreciated or not, I doubt. But that was the basis mm -hmm. of the structure of the storyline as a whole. In other words, the, the, the uh, Melanie Daniels character was the shape basically that you inputted into the, the story. She was, she was a, <coughs> a lightweight You know, treating everything, even to the point of taking, you know, buying a couple of birds in, in a cage. Mm -hmm. She was really treating the whole thing as very, uh, very, you know, very lightly, you know, that serious thing. But those two birds in that cage were going to get her. And they eventually did. What made you stick it in Bodega Bay? Was that just purely out of chance finding that location? Uh, I knew of Bodega Bay very well. Oh, you did? Yes, I'd worked up there on a picture called Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt. With Thornton Wilder. Uh-huh. In Santa Rosa. Uh-huh. So I'd been out to Bodega Bay several times. Seemed like the ideal place to have like a... Well, <clears throat> let me put it this way. In order to get the photography of the birds in the air, you have to have low land, uh -huh. not high mountains or a lot of trees. In a in a sense, in a pictorial sense, you have to have nothing on the ground except sand, so you've got a full sky. Uh -huh. That was a matter of uh, pictorial composition and the, the, the need to have the bird move around in what I would call pictorial freedom. Uh -huh. That was the reason for choosing. So you picked the most simplest, the most simple setting you could find. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because in a lot of the science fiction films of the early 50s and the late 50s, uh, the films being in the desert, where there's nothing but the desert and the sky, and a lot of the flying saucers seem to come out of nowhere, and a lot of your early... Well, early I've used that idea. Sure, of course. In North by Northwest. Very true. Right. In North by Northwest, a <coughs> sequence which became a classic sequence. 
arose out of the uh, uh, problem that one has continually in different forms. How do you avoid the cliche? Now, the cliche is man is put on the spot. What is putting on the spot? We stand waiting at the corner of the street, midnight, under a street lamp, an occasional figure clutters by, a black cat sliding along the wall, a face peers from the window, and then eventually the proverbial black limousine goes by. The man is shocked. That's why I've said we can't do this. This is so old hat. So I went the other way. I said, let's let's do it. Flat country, no houses, nothing, nowhere to hide, nowhere for the assassin is the word to appear from out of the blue. So I chose a place with those characteristics. And uh, the audience didn't know. Where, where's the danger coming from? You're told ahead of time that he is on the spot. That you know. <coughs> Has the birds ever done in a radio program? Is that, is that true? Not in my, not, not in my. I don't think so. No, so like you were the first person to adapt dramatically to the Maurier story. Yeah, yeah. Um, In my investigations, uh, why the bird behaved this way, it was that similar to the bats in a cave at it was a form of rabies. In the bats, in the caves of Carlsbad, New Mexico, these large caves are these bats. And they fly around. And the rabies from which they are suffering is in the air and not in the body of the animal. Mm -hmm. So uh, a whole mass of birds sort of carry their rabies with them collectively. And that was my theory about why the birds behave this way. It's a form of rabies. That's interesting. I don't think everybody's known that. I mean, no, I based heard. it on the information I got from the bats in the in the Carlsberg cavern. Hmm. When you presented your project to Universal, I believe the film was done here. Wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of treatment did you get? Did you get the type of budget you expected? Uh, were you given complete cooperation? Um, oh, complete cooperation. No, no. 
no budget problems at all. Now, according to the box office, the birds did not do as successful as, uh, as the box office as some of your earlier films, North by Northwest, for instance. Would there be any reason for that? Oh, of course. <coughs> it made money. It did its uh, 10 or 15 million. Uh-huh. It all that. If there was any kind of falling off, it was because a section of the audience was scared of birds. That was explained to me very clearly early on. Really? You know, a lot of people aren't going to like them. And yet, how would you explain a film like Jaws, where a lot of people are frightened of sharks? Yes, but the point is, there's only one shark. Uh huh. Whereas to the ordinary people, there are birds all over the place. Uh, in fact, when I was in Bodega Bay, a farmer came up to me and said, "You know, it's very interesting. You're going to make this picture here because." I've had a lot of trouble with, with birds pecking out the eyes of my young lambs. Hmm. He told me that. Well, uh, I'm sure that you remember a few years back the uh, bird plague they had in Maryland with all of the... Oh, there have been innumerable examples of mass birds attacking people. Like uh, I read once, a, a woman walking home with a loaf of bread was attacked by a mass of birds. They were obviously very hungry. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had many, oh, innumerable examples of birds attacking. Now, did you set out to do a film about Judgment Day, or did you set out to do a dramatization of the Moria story, or did you set out to do a scary film? No, no, I was interested in making the film because it was a horror film and uh, uh, horror in a different form, uh -huh. coming from a different quarter. That was the main thing. But you, did, was it you who mentioned the term Judgment Day or was it the people who... who uh, <coughs> no, somebody must have coined that because... I believe, I'm not sure about this, so I can't guarantee the authenticity of the statement, but I believe the intention of Du Maurier wrote the short story that the birds took over the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't prepared to know that part. I was content with the rabies theory. Um. How did Evan Hunter come into the picture? Had you worked with Evan Hunter before? No. Why Why would he be the ideal screenwriter? Or well, not the ideal screenwriter. You know, you look around and you pick a writer hoping for the best. Uh -huh. Were you pleased with the screenplay? Well, I wasn't too keen on the, the girls. The story element was um, like in the in the in the other Wells films. 
the personalities and those involved in it and their fate was not all that. But on the other hand, you see, it, it, uh, I didn't worry about it too much because I knew that I devised the shape of the film to let the birds gradually increase. You know, I think it was Fellini who made the remark about the birds and he said, well, I don't know why Hitchcock made us all wait so long before the first bird attack. Well, it's deliberate, of course, when they attack the girl in the boat. Uh -huh. It was the first drop of rain before the storm. The, the scenes in that boat provoke a question. Um, I believe in the film you used um, Melanie is obviously in a studio tank, and there's a film background. Now, what was the purpose of that? Was there lighting problems? Do you remember that? Oh, uh, it, no, no. That, it goes a little deeper than that. Melanie in the boat was against process. Process, right. Yes, but you see, we had to... Uh, you couldn't do that on a location. Now, why is that? Well, because... No bird ever attacked her. Uh-huh. See, what we did was to put a tube of air behind her and then give it a little burst which blew the hair up slightly. Uh-huh. Now, we had a blue sky. <coughs> so now we did a shot of a gull swooping down toward the camera. They did it by putting the gull on a high ladder, you see, and then letting it go right down toward the camera. And then the two were printed together, and it appeared to go right over her head. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> it was trick photographer. Oh. That's the reason it was done in the studio, you had to. Um, in the original Hunter screenplay, there's about 10 pages that weren't filmed. Apparently after they leave the, uh, the, the wrecked house, they drive off and head towards San Francisco, and they get to the Golden Gate Bridge, and there's birds sitting on the bridge. Is that true? Somebody brought that idea up and asked me, what am I going to do that? I said, look. <clears throat> if you go that far, where do you end? No, I would say that was an element that, it, that was um, part of the Du Maurier concept. That the birds were taken over everywhere. I don't believe that. As far, as far as the audience goes, I know when I first saw the film, I had a, when the, it just ended, I all this emotion that it built up kind of just kind of dropped. I said, I said, but what happened? I, uh, did you get this feeling from certain people who saw the film, the fact that they were kind of... Um, Could be, but... Uh, but that wasn't... That didn't no, mind. no. I, you know, it was one of those things, you know, in other words, one of them say almost, well, you never know where it's going to end. 
say you go to the Golden Gate Bridge. Then where do you go? Los Angeles, New York. Don't you think that a scene of the bridge itself would indicate to them they thought it was safety and there is no safety anymore? Isn't that kind of a more complete feeling at the end rather than just driving off and wondering what's going on? No, because I, it was not in reality. I was content that this particular, from what I'd heard from different people and different experiences, it seemed more real to me that it occur in one locale. Mm. In other words, um, instead of the Demoria premise that it was happening all over the world, you, your real premise is the fact that this is a localized attack. Absolutely. Ah. Absolutely localized. I see. Just as a farmer told me, up at Bodega Bay, he said, I've had this trouble with these birds. So the Judgment Day premise is purely, if any, Demoria's, and certainly not yours. Yeah, no. <coughs> Definitely not mine. Now, according to Hunter, there's a scene that occurs during the birth birthday party where Mitch and Melanie walk up to a sand dune at the top of the hill, mm -hmm. and Melanie talks a little about her background. Now, according to Hunter, he didn't write that. Was that written on the set by someone else? I don't remember anybody else being on the picture except Hunter. No, Hunter wrote the whole thing. Because um, in his interview, let's see if I have the, the note, he says that... Uh, um, yeah, but don't forget Hunter was suffering a little from a bad story notice. Oh, on, from the review of the film? Variety, he came up to me the night we showed the film in New York. And he'd read in the early hours uh, that Variety said the weakest thing in the picture is the story. And he said to me, you'll have to uh, help me through this. Hmm. Um, well, Hunter says that um, he thinks that Melanie ad-libbed the part where she talks about her background. And, she didn't uh, ad-lib anything. No, she didn't ad-lib anything. She was a girl out of a commercial. She wasn't capable of ad-libbing anything. <coughs> I mean, she wasn't a, what we call a regular commercial actress at all. No, nothing was changed from Hunter. I see. Um, you have described the birds as an unusual experience in the Truffaut book for you as a director. And what do you mean by that? In the fact that you were dealing with a different type of phenomenon? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I've never made science fiction films. Uh -huh. So you would call it kind of a science fiction film in a sense that it deals with the unknown as... Yeah, it's not a personal story. Uh -huh. Would you ever consider doing an, an event picture of this again? again? Um, or, you know, I was having breakfast with H.G. Wells on the Riviera Express, we were going along toward Cannes. And I said to him, what about War of the World, which I knew was owned by Paramount? Oh, he said, no, he said, that's out of date. He said, I'd have to invent all new phenomena. When, when was this? In the 30s? Hmm, 30s, yeah. 
what's interesting. I, I myself, while my friend is doing War War um, the Birds, I'm doing the War of the Worlds. So I've already gone back and gathered some material on the original DeMille production. It was originally going to be a DeMille film, but apparently DeMille never... Well, DeMille had purchased that and when Worlds Collide, and they dropped it and went on to something else. And I, and I know um, for, uh, the, the Russian director, Eisenstein, was going to do a version of The War of the World as well. Oh, yeah. So I see that you, you were interested in that project at that time. Oh, yes, I was, ever since I read the book. But that's what Wells told me at the time. But that was the other, only other project. He said it was out of date. Uh, <coughs> and we were at, uh, in the dining car of the Blue Train. Um, one of the uh, most interesting sequences in the birds is, of course, the attack on the Brenner house at night, with the characters reacting in horror to the sounds of the birds diving. Mm -hmm. How was this scene executed? I know it was done on a sound stage. Uh, I believe no. it wasn't done on a sound stage. That was done in West Berlin. The scene, really? All the sound in the birds was done on a special machine in West Berlin. There was a company there that had a machine. They could extract any sound you wanted. They showed me a film of a tank battle where all the sounds were made on this machine. It looked like a great console of an organ. And uh, I went there with the film to West Berlin and all the, all the sounds, all the bird sounds, were all done in this studio. I hadn't got it yet. Now, the set itself, though, was on the stage, the, where, the, where the, the little room was. Oh, yes. I see that. But so this was a novelty. No, it wasn't publicized too much. There was no point. What was the name of the company that did the sound? Yes, I can't remember. It was a West German firm. How, how had you heard about them? They came here to demonstrate. But it was totally electronic. Purely electronic. Hmm. That's why that sound was done. Because it is a unique film in that there is no musical score. No. It's all electronic. Electronic. It must have been interesting going from, I guess, from Bernard Herrmann, who's always oh, a yeah, to an electronic score. But, uh, but all those exterior sounds, these screeching birds and all done on this machine. How do you get actors to react to something that you cannot hear? I mean, in a situation like that where they have to be really terrified. Someone said you beat a drum and yeah. made noises and things I like that. I had the side drum going. Uh-huh. Give them some semblance of inner sound. Uh-huh. I had that on the set. What stage is this done on? Was it right over here? I love these stages. In the that is a very frightening sequence of them coming through the doors and everything. Yeah. I've always found that fascinating. Now, of course, there's a lot of talk about mechanical birds. I believe a lot of money was spent on mechanical birds, and they didn't do too well. I don't think there were more than five in the whole picture. Had you originally wanted to do the entire film with mechanical birds? Well, that would have kind of belayed your concept. We did. We used 3,200 birds. Most of them trained. All the ravens were trained. About a half a dozen gulls were trained. And the way they trained them, they used to float them down from a high ladder. 
down to a table covered with food. But uh, for the rest, the only mechanical bird ever used on the about not more than half a dozen, if that was in the hair of Jessica Tandy when they all came down the chimney, the pinches. Uh-huh. And now the little birds in the little sports car, the, the love birds. Oh, well, they're just... Those are mechanical. Well, oh, yeah. And then what, what? how about the... Um, the birds and the kids, they're running down, remember they're running down the hill? They're real birds. Those are real birds. Again, that was the use of uh, matching, right? Matching, sure. Okay, so like the birds, there were very, only a couple of mechanical birds. <laughs> they, were, they were there to put in her hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to that scene in the, um, in the rowboat, when Melanie gets off the boat and walks to shore, you know, holding her head, um, was that done on location? Yeah. Cause what my friend says that it looks as if when she's talking to Mitch, she's walking against rear projection again. Yeah. But that was totally live. Live, live. I noticed that in, um, in one of Whitlock's map paintings, where they actually the scene where the birds come into the city after the gasoline storage thing gets yeah, blown up. Yeah. The town of Big Daga Bay is made much bigger, I think, in the map painting. Well, yes, it was because you see, first of all, we used part of the Daga Bay village, very little, but the real village of the Daga was about eight miles away. Uh-huh. When the children ran out of the school, uh-huh. that was miles. I didn't know that. Yeah. The little, the little, the, the little no, So our Whitlock put the two together. Uh-huh. So then you see, they were actually digging a new car park up front, digging out the side of a hill. And uh, I went up there early one morning and we laid out streets and everything where they had put asphalt down or blacktop. And we all we built was the burning car and about two houses. A room for two or three other cars. Gasoline pumps. That's all. Uh-huh. The whole of the rest was a mess. Well, how did you shoot these things? Uh, well, we shot that. He put the mat in. No, I mean, what, like the live action that was shot on location on that car park. How was that shot? Was that shot from the helicopter? Uh, no, on the top of the hill. Oh, it's top, it's shot on the top of the top hill. Top of the hill. I see. Then he made a mat of the whole thing. Complete mat. Uh-huh. And the dangerous part, which wasn't noticed, was when the smoke drifted away. It drifted a bit into the mat. But it was, the smoke was so thin by that time that you didn't know. Now, having looked at that on the screen, we had to go to the next step because I realized that the gulf 
invading the town. I couldn't let them do it horizontally because we couldn't get enough guns to do it. We had one or two that attacked the gas station. Smashed into the wall of the that, phone booth. That's about all. Uh-huh. Now, we put a camera on a cliff out here somewhere and shot down toward the surf. And then we threw bread and fish down. <laughs> I trust the princess as well. Hey? I trust Princess Grace as well. Yes, she will. I always miss the fact that she wouldn't be any more movies. The movies she was in, she's so beautiful in. Um, I visited her um, her castle when I was in Monaco. And tremendous. Um, it's a monogasque world, world permitted. Mm-hmm. The monogasques won't permit it. The monogasques won't permit it? What do you mean? Well, the monogasques are the people of Monaco. Uh-huh. And they disapprove of her going back to acting in time. Oh, I see. That's the whole reason. Isn't she now involved in a... Um, isn't she... Uh, Involved in the studio right now, isn't she? 20th century folks, she's on the board. Uh-huh. Um, looking back on the birds, do you think it holds up today? Why do you think that modern audiences find it so much less frightening than, say, Psycho, which seems just as powerful today as it did 16 years ago? Well, because you see, like all science pictures, they don't carry any personalities with them. I think that's the main reason. Uh-huh. I think the personal story was weak. I see. Don't tell that to Evan Hunter. <laughs> well, that answers the next question. If you were making the birds over again, what change would you make? You obviously build up the personal story. Oh, entirely. Sure. Did you realize this afterward, or did you just... Uh, no, I really... No, no. I, as I said to you earlier, I just realized that um, the personal story is the, is the weakest thing in all the stories of H.E. Wells any of the others. Uh-huh. And there you, are very few science fiction stories where well, there's a personal story. Very few. Thus, you, you decided to make this still an event picture yeah, rather than a personal true. story. So in other words, in dealing in this type of genre, you have a natural conflict. To make the genre more credible, you have mm-hmm. to you make the event more important. Yeah, and you lose sure. your, I see what you mean. Um, some critics felt the film should have been in black and white. Do you think it would have been more effective? Would you ever cast an established actress in lead, or would you have still gone with a tippy type Andrew? Well, at that time, you see, I was um, time. You know, I promoted other girls. You know, I started Grace Kelly in a Rear Window, which tremendous film. Was the making of her, you know. And uh, but you decided to go with an unknown in this one. Yeah, well, I've gone with unknowns before, but uh, I went for this one, of course. Um, it's hard work. Did Daphne Du Maurier ever write it to you and tell you about what she thought about the film? Never a word about Rebecca or the birds, ever. Is she still alive today? 
Really? No, we'll have to find out what she said about it. <laughs> um, Probably disapproved because the uh, original story was never followed. Of course, when you deal with a different medium, you have to change. Of course you do. Now, for, in closing, you obviously saw Jaws. Uh, a lot of people have compared Jaws to the birds in certain situations. Um, um, what did you think of the film? Oh, well, You know, it was kind of, how should we say, so far as the sh shark was concerned, oversized. But I think it had to be. You know. Mm -hmm. Do you, in the sense that Spielberg used the same situation with multiple, of like starting out with an attack and then leading up to a tremendous fight, that's it's right. similar to the birds starting yeah. out kind of slowly. I think, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if that's been mentioned, but that Spielberg kind of followed your type of uh, method. So I'm told, yes. So I'm told. The films are similar. I'm, 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 I feel bad that the birds didn't get as much, you know, financially for uh, their jaws. But then again, what can you say? It was made in a different period. Um, okay. Um, that should do as far as the questions. Let me double, double check really quickly. Um... um You can't see that they're never doing a birds part two. No, no, <laughs> okay. not like they're doing with the um, airplane. Airplane 75, 76, 76. Airport. Is it true that those that were your own poodles we see walking out of the pet shop? At the yes, of the birds? yes, they're sealy hams. Sealy hams? They're both dead now, oh. yeah. What kind of dogs are they called? Sealyham. A sealyham, they were bred in 1852 uh -huh. uh, in Wales for otter hunting. They found that the terrier, which they are really, they're terriers, hunting terriers, that on the regular wire-haired terrier, the legs were too long. So they crossbred it with the Dutchman. Oh. Shorten the legs so they could borrow. And those are your dogs. Mm. We have a different one now. We have a lovely one who is a um, West Highland White Terrier. And that was bred under strange circumstances. A Scottish hunter went out, you know, shooting for pheasants which lie low in the ground among the heather and the gorse and so forth. And he shot, saw a brown movement and shot, and found he shot his own dog. And thereafter, he's going to be white. Great white. That's an interesting story. Mm. Oh, yeah.